everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have a really good old friend that I have not had on in a while. It's been way too long from First Do No Harm podcast. You guys will probably remember her, Jamie. Hey, Jamie, how are you? Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm so excited. I know it's been too long. I don't even know how that happens because I there's no reason at all. We could at any time get on here and record an episode or just talk to each other. And I see you on Instagram all the time. And then all of a sudden I look up it and over it's been over a year since we've even done it anything. It has. <laughs> well, I'm really happy to have you on this week. We've got a couple of really interesting, fascinating stories. A really quite unbelievable bad doctor story. And I'm going to stop apologizing for picking on doctors because I just don't have an excuse anymore. <laughs> they just are there. And uh, so... Not going to say that I'm sorry for doing it because clearly if I was, I would stop doing it. (laughs) Uh, But it is a fascinating story and quite unbelievable. And you just got to scratch your head sometimes at some of these people. And then absolutely precious, a good nurse story that I just can't even wrap my head around really. That it is truly remarkable and an absolute miracle. But we'll get into that in a little bit. Just remind everybody about your podcast and what you're doing right now. Thanks, Tina. So I have a podcast, First Do No Harm, that really focuses, it has a bit of medicine wrapped into it, a lot of social justice, a lot of uh, focusing on loving people and hope for human kindness. I also started a second podcast called The Neurodivergent Nurse because I was diagnosed with ADHD in December of this past year. And I've just been learning so much and I wish I would have utilized some type of resource to go through it. So I put that out every Tuesday as well. So I'm on Instagram, I'm on um, major platforms for the podcast. You can find me wherever you want, under either one, both preferably. I love it. I love that you're doing that. And I didn't realize that about about your diagnosis of ADHD. I feel like there's there are a lot of nurses out there who who struggle with that and, and or who learn have to learn to adapt. And so it's wonderful that you have that out there for like as a, almost like a resource for how you can overcome that and learn to just, you know, compensate for however you think. I think sometimes that actually can be almost if you if you utilize it correctly, you it, it, it's it almost is like a little superpower just because is it not? <laughs> I say that all the time. Absolutely. <laughs> but I never knew. I didn't know until a friend uh, gently let me know uh, and asked me if I had ever seen anyone and looked into being diagnosed with ADHD. And I was like, no, I have no idea. And it was just strange because the more information she sent me, I was thinking, so this isn't what everybody does. This isn't how everyone thinks. And I didn't know. So it's been great. And life's been a lot better since I figured out how to navigate through. So hopefully uh, this podcast will help others navigate through it as well and share the funny stories. That's awesome. And if you guys are listening to this, I I know there are a lot of of people who listen to this podcast who want to be a nurse. I've had people email me before and say, hey, I'm taking classes. I'm thinking about becoming a nurse. If you are thinking about it and you're struggling with something like that, then maybe this would be a good resource for you. That way, absolutely help you navigate through that. Yeah. And definitely not, you know, don't give up because of something like that for sure. Well, I guess we can get into this bad doctor Uh, Let's do it. So, do you know how to say his name? Uh, no. Okay. I, I I always just kind of jump in and say it. And then if it's wrong, I apologize. I, I don't know. So I'm going to just say bad doctor, Paolo 
uh, Masharini. Sound okay? Yeah, that's exactly how I would have pronounced it. Okay. So he's originally from Basel, Switzerland. Spoke seven languages. That always amazes me. I mm-hmm. wish I just, if I could just speak a second language, I would be totally happy with that. He was a thoracic surgeon and visiting researcher at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, which is also known for handing out the Nobel Prize in medicine and claimed to work on call for the elite in society like uh, the Clintons and the Obamas, which did he though? I don't know. He made a lot of claims. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he was very impressive on paper. He obviously had multiple degrees, fellowships, and a tenure at several universities around the Western world. So just somebody that you would look at and go, wow, he is certainly accomplished. He look at what all he has done and you just, you know, look up to him, right? Especially if you're in the medical field. So the, uh, the, uh, in 2008, he performed a trachea transplant from a cadaver and was branded a success and a pioneer in his field, which that is such an honor. You know, um, I hear doctors sometimes at work talking about how they want to try to find something so they get their name put on. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Absolutely. Yeah. Find some new ana- part of the anatomy like, oh, look, there's this little appendage. That will be, you know. And then- <laughs> I mean, a trachea, you have to think like with the cancer that mm-hmm. happens, if they could just completely remove it and put another one in and oh, man. the lives that could be saved. Yes. Incredible. Absolutely. So shortly after he was recruited by the uh, Karolinska Institute in Sweden after this happened and he was branded a success and a pioneer and he was on his fast on the fast track to get a Nobel Prize in medicine so he had some pretty big aspirations and pretty impressive I gotta say so that same year in 2010 he performed his first trachea transplant using a synthetic plastic part that was seeded with stem cells so the idea was that the stem cells would help incorporate the synthetic part, rebuilding the windpipe over time. So that's pretty, that's, it is very ingenuitive. If you think about it, mm-hmm. that's, uh, that would be amazing if that was possible. Over the next several years, he performed several more identical surgeries and published papers on the great success of these surgeries. So all the while, he's traveling the world he would meet a reporter. Her name was Benita. And Benita was supposed to be making a documentary uh, on this doctor. And Benita, while she's, and she admits that this was not exactly the right thing to do, but while she's supposed to be making the documentary uh, about him and the amazing medical miracles that I've been performing, she kind of fell for him. (laughs) Oh, he was so charismatic though. Have you seen him talk and his air? Mm-hmm. I mean, who wouldn't fall for him? Yes. He was described as being almost a, a George Clooney type, mm-hmm. you know, from the, the the 90s medical show ER. Very distinguished, the salt and pepper hair and very handsome. So less than a year after they met, he proposed to her and she said yes. And then he decided in a weird turn of events that he wanted to take care of all of the wedding plans. And just he wanted to do everything. You know, usually it's the woman that's making that all sounds the like that would have been a dream. <laughs> when yeah, when I got, got married this yeah. uh to my current husband, I would I was wishing that he would just take care of it all. That would have been great. Yeah, that would have been wonderful. I mean, for me too. It's 
it's stressful planning a wedding. A lot of mm-hmm. people, I think, you know, they, they think, oh, I, I want to plan the wedding. I want to plan my own wedding. I can't wait. It's going to be so much fun. It's really not that much fun. It's so much work. And it's so stressful trying to choose between, you know, I don't know if you've seen the movie Steel Magnolias, but her, yeah. her, her colors were pink and pink. Sally Field said, her colors are pink and pink. She said, my colors are blush and bashful. So just trying to make all these decisions, to me, I it's just a nightmare. So he's like, you know what? You sit back and I got this. I'm going to plan this wedding. It's going to be wonderful. And so that's what he did. So he told Benita that he wanted to get married in the Catholic Church, but they were both divorced. And so that's going to be an issue because in in the Catholic Church, not that I know a lot about Catholicism, but apparently that's a no-no if you've been divorced before. Correct. You cannot receive the Eucharist. You can't ever have been married or else you can't be blessed by God over your marriage. Mm. Okay. Well, he said that she didn't have to worry about that because he was actually going to go and have a conversation with the Pope and get that all worked out. He was going to go and speak to someone. He said that he had personally already spoken to the Pope and he agreed to marry them. Man, the connections this guy has. I know, I know. But, you know, he's George Clooney lookalike. What can you say? (laughs) No one can can, uh, resist him. So meanwhile, while all the wedding plans are going on, his work is not going as smoothly colleagues at the Karolinska Institute had started to suspect that something was not quite right with his revolutionary surgery. When they compared the patient files to papers written and published by the not-so-good doctor, they discovered massive discrepancies. And they were able to put together a 500-page complaint detailing all of the problems and unethical practices that Paolo was responsible for. So the Karolinska Institute had a reputation to protect. How many times have I said that on this podcast about hospitals and institutes and facilities? Knowing about questionable practices and sweeping it under the rug because they don't want to get, they don't want to tarnish their reputation. They don't want to get Mm -hmm. sued. You know, they don't want the negative publicity. So they let the complaint sit. And all the patients that had received this trachea transplant were not asymptomatic and they were not fine as the papers that he had written claimed. Several of them had actually died and some others were suffering, including several children. And there were at least seven patients that he performed this synthetic trachea transplant on that died. And one in particular, Yasim Situr, I think is how you pronounce it, in Turkey in 2011, he, went, he underwent the surgery for excessive sweating and doctors nicked her trachea. She flew to Sweden to undergo a trachea transplant with one of, the, one of Paolo's synthetic tracheas and the outcome was absolutely horrendous. She had an additional 191 surgeries and seemingly endless complications, wow. yeah, including several strokes that caused partial blindness and the inability to clear her throat, which doctors likened to being waterboarded. Mm-hmm. Because she's just continually drowning. She's can't, it's just always going into her trachea and she's constantly having, I can't even imagine. And this is a child? Uh, it did, I didn't say, I don't think I saw okay. how old this person was. 
Because it's strange to me, because if you're doing these transplants, typically you are a pediatric surgeon that specializes in this. Like you stick with one thing until you become really amazing at it. So for this to happen so rapidly in the idea of medicine, oh, how terrible. I'm sorry, continue. Well, that patient actually died in 2017, unfortunately. And her family sued the company that made the plastic trachea in April of 2017. There really isn't any public information about that case, which hope probably means that it, there was some sort of a settlement. Um, and Good. they, uh, yes, and they also indicated that a wrongful death suit is probably going to be in Paolo's future. So it was found by a reporter that Paolo had falsified his work experiences and qualifications, including a thoracic fellowship at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Oh, boy. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand how people falsify this. Does does there not somebody, I I swear, I I feel like a broken record, but I've said this so many times before when we deal with people who, do you know how many people there are that like, not the doctors, nurses, that literally will just put random crap on their resume and nobody checks it out. Yes, you are so right. Or, or they get someone because as a travel nurse, I'm very well aware of people who have done this before where they would ask, can I put you down as my charge nurse at a place that I worked as a traveler? No one ever checks anything. If I were to have, which I'm not dishonest, so I don't do it. But if I were to have written, yes, I was the charge for this person, this nurse for X number of years. That's all they do. They don't check me. They don't check where I currently work or anything else. Right. It's so easy to be dishonest in this field, which is not a good field for that to be, for that allowance. Oh, clearly, It's scary sometimes. Yes. It's so funny because whenever I'm making up my resume, I'm like, I'll be typing it up and I'll just think, Oh wait, that's not exactly true. Or like, I'm worried about the exact date that I started, and I, and then I catch myself going, Tina, you literally do these dumb stories where nobody's going to be checking this out, and yet it still it bothers me to my soul. So I just I want to make sure that it's right. I'm not lying on my resume. But here we go. This person puts that he had a thoracic fellowship at the University of Alabama, which I is mean, a great a, medical school, a very prestigious, mm-hmm. very prestigious for anyone that's not from the South. Yes, it is a very prestigious. <laughs> school. And I, I I don't know, gets completely gets away with, with all that he does. But it was clear to others in the field that something wasn't right with his claims. And when they compared his papers and claims, they found that they actually didn't match patient records, of course. And ultimately, the vice chancellor of the Karolinska Institute decided to dismiss the findings and extend his contract. What? <laughs> what? Can't even. Like, even if you just want to nicely let him go into the sunset where you don't make a big deal out of it, but you continue it knowing that there's dishonesty there about your Mm -hmm. education. Right. What? So he continues to plan the wedding. You know, this is all kind of going on parallel. And he had more unbelievable ideas and schemes for the wedding. He claimed to have big musical acts like John Legend booked to play at the reception. Mm. Can you imagine having John Legend? Oh, what a dream. Oh, my goodness. So he told Benita that patients of his, like the Obamas and the Clintons, would be in attendance. So she sent out invitations. Oh, bless her heart. That is so awkward. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, man. In preparation for her new life, she quit her job as a reporter, pulled her daughter out of school. Oh, and started packing for their move to Italy. This is so disruptive. I cannot 
I feel so bad for her, but she's a very strong woman because yes, she she it's okay, you guys. Just listen till the end. It's all right. Everything is fine. But the next day, a friend sent her an article. I like how it was the next day. I'm just like, could it not have been the day before? <laughs> One day, really? But an article sent her, or a friend sent her an article about how the Pope was meant to be nowhere in Italy on the day of her wedding. So I guess, you know, his itinerary is planned out ahead of time. <laughs> and this friend's like, hold up. This is, how is he going to be in two places at once? This is not going to happen. And I'm sure the friend was probably like, what? That's not ever going to happen. There is no way the Pope is going to be performing your wedding. Hold on, Google, where will the Pope be? (laughs) That's what I would have done. Yeah. I would have been that friend that would be like, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. If you ever want to know something, give a woman information. (laughs) I know. It's like, give me two seconds. I will disrupt that. And, you know, I, I like nobody's business. So he can, he continued to insist that the plans were still going forward. Even though Benita had called off all, called all of the vendors and found out that none of them were actually booked. But he's still just kind of doubling down. <laughs> you know, I'm it's just, so strange how people yeah. think that they can get away with this stuff. Like, how do you think it's going to come to pass? It's really bizarre. I don't know. It's just, I guess the alternative for him was to admit that it wasn't true that he had been lying and he just absolutely refused to do that no matter what. But if what. it doesn't happen, someone's going to find out. And he doesn't even care. He, I, I feel like he still is probably standing there going, um, just kind of like insisting that everything is true and it's none of it was a lie. He's just never going to come out of that fantasy world. But she actually put her reporter skills to good use. She uncovered this whole web of lies And she threw, I love this, she threw her engagement ring into the river and she decided to let the world know who he actually was. So in March, 2016, less than a year after he had misled her to a fictitious altar, he was fired from the Institute. Finally, the Swedish authorities also began looking into him for manslaughter, but quickly dropped the charges, of course. Paolo went to Russia where he operated without a Russian medical license and likely killed at least four or five more people. Mm-hmm. The hospital fired him twice. Bef- Wait, what? <laughs> okay, let me say that again. The hospital fired him twice before he left. Like, you're fired. And then he apparently continued to work. Hello, did you miss what I said before? You're fired. And then he left. I don't know. I don't understand. Do you not understand? So the outcome of this case is still pending in Sweden in September 2020. Um, they did, authorities did open an aggravated assault case against him. However, it's unclear where he actually is right now. According to some sources, Sweden is the only country that's actually looking into this, but others say he was sentenced to 16 months in Italy for falsifying documents. So it's a little bit hmm. um, difficult to track down exactly what's going on with him. So... That's pretty much it. The vice chancellor at the Institute, the Karolinsky Institute, resigned. And that's usually what happens. You know, everything's kind of getting swept under the rug. And then when it all blows up, somebody gets fired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Several of his published papers have been retracted. Shouldn't they all be retracted? They should be. Yeah. So in September 2020, they filed charges against him for aggravated assault. He pleaded not guilty. Three of the deaths 
due to plastic trachea happened at KI, that institute. So far, only they're the only country to investigate and file charges. In Spain, there were two or three deaths caused by his trachea surgeries and five in Italy. And Russia and the U.S. have worked to improve his original idea, and they're not pursuing investigations either. So just a crazy, twisted story that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever and is so unbelievable. Also, he is still married to another woman. So earlier when I said that there was a problem with them getting married because of the divorce, no, he's still married anyway. That was not going to happen. He still maintains he did nothing wrong and that the deaths were to be expected with new uh, new procedures, especially in the area of transplants. He also maintains that patients had uh, that died did died be- due to underlying health issues that were fatal. I'm so tired of hearing that. Then why mm-hmm. are you performing surgery? Mm-hmm. Why would you be performing a trachea transplant on someone who had a fatal condition? You wouldn't do that unless it was just a formatted as a clinical trial mm-hmm. that that's, you know, what they agreed to. You know, like cancer, sometimes you jump onto clinical trials that doesn't have enough evidence. But it sounds like this is something that he was doing that was not part of clinical trials. It was part of what he deemed to be incredible and amazing and life-saving. Right. There's a big, there's a big discretion there. Yeah. And I, it's so hard for me to understand how someone can go work at this big prestigious institute with all this falsified information. I just don't understand it. I don't understand why it's taken so long to pursue any sort of action against him. And he basically has escaped any real consequences. And I, I don't know. It's it's hard to believe. I know it's not, it's a different country, but I, I don't know that the outcome would have been any different if it had been the, in the United States. Mm-hmm. I agree. Well, that was our bad doctor story. And I mean, goodness, I told you it was crazy, you guys. Master yes. manipulator. Well, we have a really nice, good nurse story. Oh, I love this one so much. I'm excited about this. So this is a story of Jacqueline Rodriguez. She is the patient. She was diagnosed with COVID-19 when she was 28 weeks pregnant. And... She said that when her COVID-19 symptoms got worse, she had to be admitted to Tufts Medical Center in Boston. And she immediately had to be transferred to the surgical intensive care unit. And she was intubated. That's, oh my gosh, can you imagine how scary Mm -mm. that would be? No. To be intubated when you're pregnant? and you That and to have COVID because Mm -hmm. it's so novel. Mm -hmm. Oh, you don't know what the outcome's going to be. Terrifying. I know. The nurse manager, Angela DeRochers at Tufts Medical Center of the, uh, the OBGYN um, unit said that even with forcing as much oxygen as they could into her, her oxygen levels were not staying high enough. And I've experienced this myself with patients. Mm-hmm. You've got, they're literally on a ventilator and they're not able to keep their oxygen. Look, what else are you going to do? Well, I'll tell you what else you're going to do. You're going to do ECMO. And you're literally going to be taking the blood out of them, oxygenating and then put it, putting it back in. Because you can't, you can't flip her. You can't prone her because she mm-hmm. has a baby in her belly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even the proning doesn't work sometimes. And this mm-hmm. is when you, they go in ECMO. And I'm telling you, it's a last-ditch effort. And they, they look like they have a garden hose sticking out of their neck. It is. If you can just imagine like a, a garden hose. I'm not even kidding. Like a, a, a small garden hose like coming out of someone's neck, bright red. It's That's what it looks like. And it's just... Unbelievable. This woman is 28 weeks pregnant and this is her reality. So 
the nurse manager said that she was just in shock because she she called the OBGYN attending and said, hey, you know, can you come look, you know, come check on her and see, you know, what are we going to do? And he said, we're going to have to deliver the baby or they're both going to die. So the nurse manager said, she's still intubated. What? She literally has machines breathing for her and circulating her blood. Like it it was blowing the the mind of this nurse manager. Like what, how is this going to happen? So the patient said, I had no idea that he was being born. She said, you know, of course she's sedated. She said it broke her heart a little when she woke up and they, and they told her, yeah, your baby was born. Um, she said, but it's okay because I'm alive and he's alive. She said, when they woke me up, they told me the baby was born. And I remember touching my stomach to feel like, wait, am I understanding there? Like, because there, for her, she uh, just went to sleep at some point and has no memory. Like even, I feel like even if they have to sedate someone for a C-section, which they don't really do that much anymore, but if they did, you at least know why you're being put under, right? Mm-hmm. But so you wake up and you're not going to be like, "Wait, what? What?" Ha- where? But she's like, she wakes up and the baby's out. You know? So I strange. think it would take me time to realize that when they when they would say, "I delivered your baby," I would think they're dead, right? I would mm. have that panic, and it would take so much time knowing that I had COVID, and then mm. they had to emergently take my child away at 28 weeks. Yes. Oh, that's so soon. Yeah, and she wasn't able to meet her baby because she still tested positive for COVID. So they mm-hmm. had to they delivered the baby and then take it away immediately, and she's not even able to hold it. She can't see the baby. Oh my goodness. She said I was a great I was grateful to God to be alive. I was grateful that he was okay, but not being able to hold him and be the first person to see your kid, your baby, it was really hard. <laughs> Just like that's heartbreaking. It is. Man, the things that people have had to go through this past year, I'm telling you, just unprecedented situations. When she finally tested negative, she left the hospital without Julian, the baby, because he had to stay in the hospital under supervision for another 83 days. Mm-hmm. Man, I that's bet. a long time. Her husband said she's been a warrior. First of all, she's she's been a hell of a woman. He said she did it. She's alive, and that's all that matters. Can you imagine having... You end up having to be on ECMO. Your lungs are just shot. Mm-hmm. That the maximum amount of oxygen, one hundred percent FiO two, is mm-hmm. not doing enough for you, and you you go home. Mm-hmm. What a strong woman that must be! And wow, you, guys, you really should go. It was from ABC Good Morning America, the story, and um, we always put the credits in our our uh, the the notes underneath, you know, where like if you're looking looking at it on Podbean, you can you should be able to see the credit, but it is uh, ABC News is who did the story. And there's a video of them and you can see her and her husband and you can see them holding the baby. And if you have ever seen patients on ECMO for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and then come off ECMO to not maybe the grace the greatest outcome. Um, and you've seen that over and over and over again to sit there and watch that video of that woman who looks totally normal and beautiful and mm-hmm. like the most adorable family ever. You need to go see this. <laughs> you really do. I mean, it, it gives me hope for for the ECMO program. You know, it's ECMO is, I feel like it's just, it's such a last ditch effort. You it know? really is. So it's like the outcomes are not always the best for these patients because it's not that, uh, I mean, ECMO is a wonderful thing, but if, if you can't get the lungs to work again, what are you going to do? You know, a lung transplant. If you can't do that, then 
there's not much else you can do. So I'm blown away with that video. It'll it'll make your day if you if you are familiar with ECMO and those patients and what they look like and you, you want to see something to make your day. I'm telling you, go look this video up. It's it's absolutely wonderful and and so encouraging. The nurse manager said, so Rodriguez said, said about the the nurses and the doctors and the whole healthcare team. They did an amazing job. They did everything they could. I appreciate it to the bottom of my heart. And the nurse manager said, it just reminds me and all of us in healthcare of why we do what we do. And I love that because I we all have to, uh, We I had a, a nurse on here, David, a few weeks ago from Duke, who was in a really cute little video with this girl who has cancer and he works on the oncology floor there at Duke. And he did this adorable little video where he was singing with her and it was so sweet. And so he came on and uh, let, let me interview him. And he was talking about your why and to not let, you know, not lose sight of your why, why you do what you do. And I love that. That's what this nurse manager said, because it is important to remember why we do what we do, especially during these times, because it is easy when we're short staffed, when we're under so much stress, working in uh, dangerous, unsafe conditions. Um to remember why we're doing what we do. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. This has been a great episode. I love it. Thank it's not you, been too Tina. dark. It's been kind of nice, you know, just to be able to chat with you. And we had a great conversation before. I, I was telling Jamie before we need to just do like a, maybe, maybe we do an episode of your podcast where we can just like chat about stuff. I think that we should. Okay. Let's plan it. I will send you a link and we'll make it happen. And you guys can go and listen to that too, because Yay. we have some pretty fun conversation just between the two of us. <laughs> we do. <laughs> well, you guys, thank you so much for listening. And Jamie, remind him where, the, where can they find you again? Okay. So two podcasts you have to check out is First Do No Harm, just like the Hippocratic Oath. And the second one is The Neurodivergent Nurse. I have Instagram accounts for both. I'm also trying to set up on a Facebook platform that nurses who have uh, any type of neurodivergency that we can kind of make a community and we can talk about things that are difficult. It's a very safe place for us all. But it's either one of those podcasts, they are on all your listening platforms, except the newest one, The Neurodivergent Nurse. I have not gotten it onto the Apple podcast yet, but it's going to be up there pretty soon. So I hope you guys go listen. It was great talking to you all as well. Awesome. And you know that you can email me anytime at tina at goodnursebadnurse.com or you can find me on Instagram at goodnursebadnurse or on Twitter and Facebook, very minimally, at GNBN Podcast. And also want to remind you guys, even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse. Mm-hmm.